So 2 Peter, I'm going to just start at the beginning here again because we've been working through the flow of thought of the Apostle Peter. So starting at chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind." And cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So far, let us pray and ask for the illuminating spirit. Holy God, indeed, as we now turn to your word. Lord, we are weak and hopeless and pitiful in and of ourselves. Lord, the knowledge of Christ is a gift. And so we need your spirit this morning. And would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear. I pray that you would give me wisdom to speak your word faithfully. May we be discerning and may you be magnified through the proclamation of your most holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to be dealing with verse 4, and uh, there's a lot packaged in there, but it starts following the argument from verse 3 where it opens up with whereby, and that is calling us to think back to what came before. So we have to remember that last time we saw that it is according to the divine power of God peculiarly given in Jesus Christ that everything is provided for life, life now, life into eternity, and godliness. And notice the tying of the two, life and godliness. We're going to keep seeing that thread coming back. How we live corresponds to that we live. Okay, those two coming together, we saw that reality centers on the epignosin, the true acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. Nothing up here matters if it is not in our hearts. If we have not had heart surgery, as it were, by the Spirit of God, we'll be dead, fruitless, barren, lost. And we saw that last time. But the interesting thing, just to remind you, that life and godliness, in verse 3, correspond to Christ, who has called us, and it says in our version, to glory and virtue, and I argued last time that the preposition dia there should be, I think rightly, um, through glory and virtue, referring to Christ's glory and virtue. Christ's glory is life, Christ's virtue, his holiness. So really, put the two together. Our life 
is derivative from Christ's glorious life. Our godliness is derivative from Christ's glorious virtue and godliness. And so that's where we were. And so from that, he says, whereby. And it again is transitioning, saying, through that faith, through that reality, we will now move forward. Now, interestingly, when it says whereby, that could be translated in two ways. It could be literally on account of which, so something, or on account of whom. The Greek allows for both. I think the best way to understand it is that by means of Christ's glorious virtue, we are given and loaded with promises. So it's by means of Christ, but Christ as described, glorious and virtuous. So step back from that for a minute and remember this. A Christless gospel is no gospel. A Christless message is absolutely no hope. But in Christ Jesus, we have absolute hope, promise, and security. Jesus is all things for the church. And so we move from there to these promises. And this is really, really fascinating how Peter is weaving this all together. Because the first thing we need to note is that in the Greek, the word for promises here is a variation of the normal word for promise, epangelia. This one's epangelma, slight nuanceical difference. They are virtually identical, but there is a nuance. And why, why this nuance? Why this variation to this word? Now, in ancient culture, Unfortunately, now too, in our culture, promises are often given with zero intention of keeping them, and they're really just a sign of goodwill. Oh, I promise to do this, but you have no, no intention of keeping them. And that was very common in ancient culture as well. People would do that. They'd, they'd have no integrity, and people almost accounted for those kinds of promises. People are fickle. And so that was a non-binding promise. The point here is, with God, all promises are binding, and they are perfectly fulfilled. Solomon says that when he dedicates the temple, which is a picture of the body of Christ, the temple, when he says this, "'Blessed be the Lord, who hath given rest unto his people,' Israel, according to all that he has promised, there hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Now, the unique variation of this word emphasizes not just the reality of a promise, but is actually given to us to, to draw an emphasis or to focus us on its fulfillment. And that's why this variation in the word. Now, this is really striking because the regular word for promise, epangelia, is used 53 times in the New Testament. 53 times. Guess how many times this variation is used? Twice. Guess in which book? The Petron epistles, particularly Second Peter, 
only. It's only Peter who picks up or uses this nuance, this variation. And guess where in his letter he uses this nuanceical word? At the beginning and at the end. So he is bookending his entire letter with this word of promise, this peculiar nuance of promise. That is really interesting. It's in chapter 1, verse 4, where we are, and in chapter 3, verse 13. That's it. These bookends. And the reason is, is because the false teachers were doing what? What were they challenging? The promises of God. That was their entire assault. God doesn't keep his word. Where is the promise of his coming? Chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. God keeps his word. False teacher says, God doesn't keep his word. And so precisely when we are in doubt, precisely when others are challenging us, challenging our faith, we must remember that we should not question the promises of God. These unique bookends demonstrate this. The fulfillment of God's promises has begun, and it galvanizes the guarantee of final fulfillment. The unleashing of the promises are, have, or have taken place. So now we've got to ask, logically, well, what are these promises? What is Peter referring to when he talks about these promises? First of all, notice in the text that the Greek is plural, uh, the word there, promises, plural, many. Many could come to mind, but does Peter give us a clue in this letter what he might be referring to? And I think he does, and it is at the other book end, chapter 3, verse 13, where he uses the same word. Take a look there when it says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, that unique word, look for a new heavens and new earth. That, to me, is where Peter is focused as to which promises he has in mind, but also take a look in chapter 1, verse 11, which we remember looked at uh, in our reading this morning, verse 11, when it says, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the promise of the new heavens and new earth and of the kingdom are the one and same reality. And unpacking that mega promise, the new heavens and new earth, the kingdom of God, underneath are a plethora of Old Testament expectations and promises. Right? We could, we could put them as the goal, but underneath we can see many, many, many layers of Old Testament hopes and expectations it was Peter who wrote this, Peter who was steeped in the Old Testament, and he would have known these expectations of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the, the Anointed One. He would know about the future kingdom of peace, the Shalom, kingdom of God. He would have eagerly expected, as all creation expects, the serpent crusher who would come, the great son of David. It was Peter who would have grown up hearing Jeremiah 31 talking about the promise of a new covenant that God would make where he says, and they shall all know me. And it was Peter who would also grow up with the expectation of Joel chapter 2 when it talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All these expectations were thick in Israel's uh, life. It was their entire culture was bound up in promise. And so... In Acts 2, at Pentecost, it would be Peter who would stand up, right, 
and say, these men are not drunk as ye suppose. Let's turn there for a second. Acts chapter 2 at the, the day of Pentecost. And I particularly want to look at a couple verses here. Look at verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And then go to verse uh, 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath, this is a promise, to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, the Messiah, to sit upon his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Do you notice what Peter is linking? The last days, the kingdom the Christ, the throne of Christ, and the outpouring of the Spirit, all of these coalescing together in the last days, in the days of fulfillment. That's where we're at. We live in these days. All of the Old Testament promises are unleashed now and culminate, like I said earlier, in the new heavens and new earth. Now go back to Second uh, Peter again. You notice that it says in our verse, whereby thus are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. The word given here is in the perfect tense, which means it's an abiding reality. These things and the promises and their fulfillment are the abiding, remaining possession of the church. They belong to us by grace, by grace. So, from there, we move to the next phrase. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Again, Peter is arguing towards a purpose when he says, in order that by these. He's showing us what the purpose of the promises are. And this is where it gets pretty deep. So if you were nodding off, I encourage you to wake up and to put on your thinking hats for a second. Partaking in the divine nature. The word for divine, used three times in the Bible, this particular word is only used in Acts 17. We saw last time, the Godhead is not like unto us. It is used in the previous verse, verse 3, according as his divine power, and it is used now again, the divine nature. And the word nature is used throughout the scriptures. But interestingly, this is referred to some as deification. We partake in deification. 
Now that sounds heretical. Do we become gods? The uh, Greek Eastern Orthodox Church split from the West and by 1453 was booted out of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. And yet, in all that time, many of the early church fathers held to a theology with respect to what this verse is, and they taught what is called theosis. That's what they called it. Now, some have mistaken the Greek side, the Eastern Orthodox Church, as to mean that they're saying, oh, you're sharing in the essence of God. You are becoming gods when you say theosis. That is not what they taught. Most of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which, is, which springs from the, the original church, taught a rigid divide between God and all of creation. So the question is, what did they see, and what ultimately does this text teach? In the Greek classics, they would say the divine and the divine nature is something we need and the spark of the divine is in each one of us and just needs to be freed or recognized. Plato, famous philosopher, taught this. He said the immortal soul is imprisoned in a mortal body. So that's what the Greek philosophers taught. We've got the word theosis. What about the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews that were scattered throughout the empire and, and were Hellenized or made kind of Greek in their thinking? They were closer. They were closer because what did they see that we have to think about here when it talks about partaking of the divine nature? They taught that it was something more akin to having immortality, eternal life, living forever, or unchangeableness. Now, they're getting closer because if you look at the text, look at the last phrase, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Corruption, its counterpart is incorruption, being incorruptible, living forever, immortality, right? So there's something there that these Hellenistic Jews saw that I do think they're onto something here. So let us examine this phrase, the last phrase, first to try to understand the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, the first thing to look at here is the phrase, having escaped. This word is not used anywhere else, again, besides Second Peter. It's used three times in this letter. So, strikingly, it's, again, peculiar to Peter's thinking. It is used in Second Peter 2, verse 18. Now, start watching what's escaped, what you escape. So 2 verse 18, for when they speak, that's the false teachers, swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. So we can log two words already, corruption, error. That's part of the escape. The last one, chapter 2 verse 20 for if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. The last word, pollution. So we have pollution, corruption, error, all these things that what? That subsume the curse. Everything that the curse brought, the believer has escaped now, notice as well the word corruption back in our text. Corruption simply, that which is perishing, that which is decaying. 
And it says in here, it is in the world. And that is why Peter talks in the promise, in this peculiar fulfilling of the promise, about a new heavens, a new earth, because everything that has to do with this world is broken, it's perishing, it is rotting away at the core. But the interesting thing, and this is where we're going to tie this all together, is Peter tells us how this corruption works, what brought this corruption, what furthers this corruption, and sets it opposed to life and living. That's the question I want to ask. And Peter tells us that is in the world through lust. It is lust that brings this. It is lust that furthers this. It is lust that is opposed to life. Now, 2 Peter 2, verse 12, if you look there, it talks about where this corruption heads, and this ties into the question of life. It says, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil and of things that they understand not, and they shall utterly perish in their own corruption. See, that's the interesting thing. As life, lust, sorry, brings corruption, and as that is furthered, it brings ultimate destruction, perishing hell. That's where it goes. So see the pattern. Sin brings death. Death brings eternal death. Everything that's opposed to life. The antithesis of life is obviously death. Now, through this lust, lust is cravings, desire, strong desires, for that which is forbidden. Okay? What do you think of? Desiring that which is forbidden. Our minds must go back to the garden. When Eve looked upon the fruit and took of it, Adam took of it, they lusted after it. They sought that. And what did they unravel? What happened? The curse. They saw that they were naked and they were cursed. They desired the forbidden they wanted to do that which God's law forbode. Similarly, the false teachers, again in this book, who walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, who allure through the lusts of the flesh, who scoffers walking after their own lusts. It's what you do. It's what you hunger after. It's what's inside of you, what you crave. Remember this. Because if we're going to understand what it means to partake of the divine nature, it has to set itself against these cravings that bring death. But think about this. Teachers in churches that are what we would call in theology antinomian against God's law are those who promise liberty, but they actually bring death. And from many pulpits in our nation, from many universities where professors are boldly and proudly lecturing, from many radio shows, from many television programs, from many podcasts on our phones, and from, unfortunately, our government, is heralded, heralded liberty. Do what you want to do. A famous company the sells shoes, says, just do it. Choose whatever you want to be. 
choose to slay the child you carry and mangle it and will harvest body parts. Choose your sexual fantasies. Choose what you want to watch. Choose your unions. Redefine them. Choose what you can covet after and greed. Go ahead, make your choices. Hunger after whatever you hunger. Ad programs are there to allure you and feed sin and covetousness. And they promise that if you do these things, you'll have liberty. Do you think there's life in that? You think there's true liberty in antinomianism, in lawlessness? That's a promise they give. The professor extends it. Believe this, and you'll be happy. Is that going to work? Is there liberty? Is that a promise you bank yourself on? No, it's a lie. And Peter has a name for these liars. Chapter 2, verse 19, he says, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. You see that? There's no liberty in lawlessness. And so, sadly, Peter is primarily pointing out in this letter not so much what's going on in the world, but what's going on in the churches. So watch out for teachers who turn Christian liberty into sinful license. Be on guard for those who spurn the word of God. False teachers infect the church and they stoke the embers of sin. Jesus calls them ravening wolves. Have you ever seen a wolf on a video or in a movie devouring something? That's what they do. Have you been massaged by this thinking? What is, what is Christianity for you? You might be sitting in church this morning, but there might be no life in you. Do you go to church hungering for the word of God? Are you just here this morning because tradition has brought you here? This is what we do on Sundays. Do you go because your parents make you go and that's it and I can't wait till I'm 18 or out of the house and I'm done with this Christianity thing? Are you here because you hate sin and want to grow in holiness as you gaze upon Jesus Christ? Do you hate sin not because of its consequences and it made life miserable for you? Regret? Or do you have genuine repentance because it is an affront to God himself? Is God some sort of a bandage over a stinking wound that keeps festering? And that's why this whole religion thing hasn't worked out for you because Christ is not the balm to your soul and you don't realize you're a wretch. One of the marks of a Christian is a love for the commandments of God, a longing after a holy life. And so, as long as we blame others, blame our circumstances, if only this wouldn't have happened, if only that sale would have gone through, if only, if only, if we blame our genetics, oh, if, I, if I would have born and been born with different genetics or into a different family, surely I would have been better. The Bible says... It is our own problem. We have to own what we are. We are sinners by birth. It pollutes everything, our mind. It pollutes our attitudes. It pollutes our relationships. It pollutes how we do things at work. Everything is corrupted because it's inside these lusts. One commentator writing many, many years ago said this, 
the carnal lusts war against the soul, which thereby is increasingly enfeebled and darkened. It grows in wickedness. And here's the interesting thing. This is where we're going to see the opposite. And becomes more like the devil and inclines to hell through many of these lusts. The naturally good condition of the body is also ruined. People, because of the lusts of the mind, mutilate their own bodies. Like a gangrene, it eats away flesh, and so sin eats away life. Remember that, life. So the stark opposition is this divine nature, the opposite of this. And the idea of escaping that and now sharing in something else are set again at two poles. We've escaped as believers all of that so that we can now partake of all of this. Divine power, verse 3, has burst us from the shackles that were in our heart. And thus we are now lusting after new things where before we were by nature children of wrath. The opposite is what we will now share in. And I want you to look back at the bookend verse now of this promise. Because this is where it gets really tying it all together. Because remember I said the promise is forward gazing to a new heaven and new earth. But guess what it says next? Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, unique word, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. You see that? The ethical is part and grounding the eternal. Life and ethics are so tied together, just like we saw in verse 3. Right When it talked about life and godliness, virtue and glory, all these things are so interwoven, which is why something has to happen inside of us that is transforming our lusts. Our nature needs to be conformed to a new nature. The qualities of God that we share in are known by the Western church, the Latin church, as what they would call the communicable attributes of God. These are things like justice, righteousness, goodness, things that embody righteousness. The incommunicable attributes of God are things like his eternality, things like his omnipotence. We never will share in that, then we would be God. But what he communicates to us, what we do share in, are all the things that are moral, Things that belong to righteousness. Now, if you're thinking here, you're thinking, hold on, hold on. We can't divide God up into parts, communicable and incommunicable. You're right, we can't. These are just ways that we try to grasp these realities. But the staggering thing from this text is this, that the incommunicable attributes of God, particularly his eternality, how does he reveal himself? I am From everlasting to everlasting, he has been God. We will never share in that essence. And yet that reality 
gives us, communicates something of righteousness, and because of that participation, it will feed something of the eternal. I want to show that here in a second. Like I said, this one's pretty deep this morning. To be conformed to the nature of God is intimately tied to eternal life. Here's how one commentator puts it. The immortal permanence of the divine, we would call the incommunicable attributes of God, his essence, is connected with holiness, purity, and goodness, the communicable attributes. And so it is likely that what Peter has in mind when he says we participate in the divine nature is reception of the ethical nature like God's. And you have a new earth wherein is righteousness, which then leads, here's the interesting thing, to immortality. Lusts to corruption, to death, to eternal death. Right? Holiness to life as we are conformed to God, to a new heavens and new earth where there is no longer corruption. You see the opposites. Where Adam's sin brought death, Christ's obedience brought life. That's exactly why the next verses we will be looking at in this series have everything to do with holiness. Like when he says, besides this giving all diligence, add to your faith that is conforming and partaking of the divine nature. And so eternal life and holiness are inseparable. Martin Luther already saw this in the 1500s. Remember the Great Reformation? The man that said justification by faith alone. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Martin Luther would say about the divine nature, he says, what is the divine nature? Eternal truth. You see the words? Eternal truth. Righteousness, eternal life. Peace, joy, delight, and whatsoever good may be named. Hence, Luther would say, he who becomes a partaker of the divine nature is wise Righteous and now almost to become a heretic, but he's not a radical in saying this, and omnipotent against the devil, sin, and death. So as we are conformed to Christ, we will live forever, and because we live forever in righteousness, we will never die, and we are omnipotent. We are powerful in him against all these corrupting influences. This is part of Old Testament teaching, too. Because in Isaiah 57, 15, I quoted this verse last time as well. But notice the link between holiness and life again. This is God speaking. He says, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. There's our incommunicables. Whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and lofty, a holy place, holiness, and eternality tied together. 
This is why holiness is not an option. This is why John Owen, the Puritan, would say, you best be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's why Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews said, follow after peace and holiness without which no man shall see God. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not pursuing holiness, adding to their faith. This is exactly what the early church always affirmed. And here's where I'm going to have you think one more time with me, because this gets even deeper. This is going to um, maybe challenge you a little bit. The early church realized that forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ, which is perfect, which is pure, which is completely justifying, and is our hope in life and in death, and we sing it all the time, in and of itself, forgiveness of sins is not enough. The cross did more than transact pardon. The great defender of the Trinity, Athanasius, we know the famous statement, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasium against the world. He stood against the world, and he doesn't treat guilt as the core problem. Yes, the transaction cleanses us, but in 360 AD, he would write this. He says, repentance gives us no exemption from the consequences of nature. You see, that clean slate doesn't affect a heart situation yet. We still need a nature that is now breathing and hungering and passionate for the things of God. Otherwise, it's like a criminal who you, you wipe the slate and he walks out and does it again and doesn't care and does it over and over and over and over. Back in jail, back out, back, back, back and forth. Wiping the slate. We need more. And so he says, repentance gives no exemption from the consequences of nature but merely loses sins. If, therefore, there had been only sin, that was all it was, just sin. Adam and Eve sinned. But not its consequence of corruption, the curse, the pollutions, the errors. He says repentance would have been very well. But we're dealing with corruption. So think about what this verse means. I love this. Tying this all together. Christ's promises, front-loaded in the verse, that are given, are more than the beautiful grace of forgiveness. They stretch beyond justification into sanctification and ultimately to glorification. That's the line. And now, am I saying something biblical here? Absolutely. Paul would say so much. Romans 8, for whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. You see that? To be conformed to his image? Well, that's the divine nature. And then he says this, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. Whom he called, them he justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Glorified. You see that? Everything packaged together in the work of our Savior. The entire Christian life is thus driven it is anchored and compelled, not by you and me, not by our efforts, 
but as Peter tells us here, by the omnipotent supply of Almighty God, as divine power has given us promises. And these promises are being fulfilled. Peter and John walked together with Jesus for three amazing years. And so we've seen the Apostle Paul correspond with this thinking. We've seen Peter say these types of things. John says the identical thing in his own words because each apostle had a unique character, right? He says this, 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3. You can look it up with me if you want for a second. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, new heavens, new earth, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, the divine nature. For we shall see him as he is. And the beauty of it all is he does the same thing. Every man that hath this hope in him does what? purifieth himself even as he is pure. It is the horsepower that drives the sanctification of the Christian is our future hope secured in a justifying cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that is renovating our lusts, ripping them out and changing us, changing our affections, conforming us to Jesus Christ. And so know this church, know this dear people of God. God is not offering the church some meager strength He does not extend some frail supply, shavings of his grace to accomplish these things. Indwelling the church is the very spirit of God that is renovating affections and lusts from the inside, ripping out the old drywall, as it were, and putting in beautiful, new, renovated hearts. It is the spirit of God that does that. And so I want to close this morning just rejoicing in what Peter then, with all this thinking in mind, says about these promises. Because I skipped something. Did you catch it? The promises, he describes them as great and precious promises. They're right on the mark. Great, mega, megas. In the Greek, this is the superlative. It's the highest exaltation. We see in our version the exceeding great and precious promises. Oh, to just think of what you and me have been saved from. Our wretchedness to be reconciled to God. To be clothed in his righteousness that is completely not our own. To be imputed Christ's perfection, perfectly accounting to us that not one sin is held against our charge ever. Not one trespass of the law of God that we have done this past week, the grumbling, the complaining, the covetousness, the pride, the Sabbath breaking, whatever we do, not held against us. Beyond that, we are adopted into his own family. We are exalted in Christ. Paul says this to the church. He says, church, you want to see what these exceeding great promises are? He says, that's my prayer. My prayer for us all is that we see the great things 
that God has furnished for us when it says in Ephesians 2, we are raised up together and Christ has made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then the most staggering part of that verse that we maybe pass over so often, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. I, I love that because it means into the vast expanse of eternity, God is going to completely continue to unleash further greatness of his promises. He will continue to shower us with new avenues, new ways of beholding Christ. That means, simply, that it is impossible now to catalog the exceeding greatness of these promises. We just anticipate, hopefully, joyfully, those promises and so Peter will also call them very precious very precious of great worth especially dear and honorable it is precious as we sang this morning wonderful savior precious redeemer and friend who would have thought that a lamb would rescue the souls of men it is the lamb of God that would give what was most precious to him his very life the life of the Son of God, of infinite worth, of infinite honor, slain for wretches like you and me, deserving nothing. It's, you, you think of this preciousness when thousands upon thousands of lambs and calves were slain and leaders and leaders of blood was on the altar, on the people, and none of it would ever go into the heavenly tabernacle, but the Bible tells us that Christ once offered himself for sinners and as through what? Through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God and purged our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, lusts. Done, escape, now serving, partaking. It's all in there. Have you thought about the worth of our Christ lately? Who does the Father place his highest affections upon? On who is the Father so delightful? Who does he say, this is my beloved Son, and him I am well pleased? It is Jesus Christ. John Owen would write of Jesus, our Savior, that he is that person whose loveliness and beauty all the angels of God all the holy ones above do eternally admire and adore. This is he whose joy, the delight, who is the joy, the delight, the love, and the glory of the church below whom we love. He is the desire of nations. So precious are these promises that give you future hope. Because whether you today come to Christ for the first time and die five minutes later, you are preciously and eternally saved in Jesus Christ, or whether you have served Christ. As Polycarp said, these 80 years now I have served him, and he was offered life by Nero or by the Caesar or whichever ruler was said to him, hey, reject Christ. Why would he renounce him? Because he knew he had life, precious life in Christ. 
One commentator writes this, the promises are precious, a precious book. Every leaf drops myrrh and mercy. The weak Christian cannot open, read, and apply it. But Christ can and will for him whom we love. It's Jesus is everything to the church. Are you ready to give your all for him? What is most precious for you? What is the most precious thing you have? It is your soul. It is your soul. Jesus spoke this of a kingdom, of his kingdom. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. What you value most, you are willing to give the most for. What do you value most? It's a serious question. What do I value most? Your most valuable thing is your soul. Why do we get so busy being worked up by fleeting things, passing glories, things that are not worth even comparing to the glory that shall be revealed? I want to leave you with what this man did in the parable. What did he do? He sold all that he had to buy that field. He doesn't bat an eye at the loss. It doesn't even describe how he felt about the loss. It describes one thing. The joy of knowing he has that treasure. He's overcome by that joy. Church of God, rejoice in these great and precious promises. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, what a great salvation you have purchased for your church. What a wonderful gift of life you have given us. We thank you for the spirit that empowers, that enlivens, that conforms us to the likeness of Christ. Oh, Lord, may we behold him by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.